I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's full contact with The Telegraph. Well, the semi-finals of the Champions Cup have come and gone, and that leaves us with a Leinster versus Saracens final. With me to discuss all this and the Challenge Cup and all sorts of other things is the former Scotland and regular contributor and co-host to the podcast. It's Hugo South. Well, hello, Hugo. You're looking well in bedecked in your shorts. Nice weather, isn't it? I'll tell you what, uh, it's a bit hotter down here having flown down <laughs> from Edinburgh. Um, yeah. Probably five degrees uh, warmer, but... Yeah, it's good to be back here and uh, good to be able to discuss an eventful weekend. Why don't we start with Saracens? And although the scoreline th- says 32-16 win over Munster, I thought it was a bit more clear-cut than that. Yeah, I think it was a bit more clear, clear-cut. And, you know, as much as Saracens took a while to, to grind down a, a resolute Munster team, you know, you always felt they had too much. You always felt they had another gear. And uh, their big players played a big part in the game. And the likes of Billy Vunapola likes of Michael Rhodes, the likes of uh, Alex Goode, Owen Farrell, they're all at the top of their game. And it's when you get to these crucial games, semi-finals, you need those guys to step up. They did exactly that. Munster couldn't get into the wrecking pattern that they've had around the breakdowns. They were cleaned out very accurately, very quickly, weren't they? They couldn't really get into the sort of scrap that they wanted to because Saracens just had that extra quality. And as you say, with a lot of players and big players coming to the fore, let's discuss... Billy Vinopola, now Stephen Jones, a writer for another newspaper, said that he didn't think it was the uh, case that Vinopola was booed on his own because lots of other players were booed. Well, I didn't discern that, certainly not to the extent to which Vinopola got. I just thought it was a bit juvenile, frankly. Yeah, I think whether it was right or wrong, for for Billy to come out and did what he did, probably, in my opinion, he probably should have just kept quiet. It's happened now for him then to be booed. Um, you know, it got dealt with internally. It got dealt with by Saracens, the RFU. It's now sort of just carrying on when it shouldn't really carry on. But look, I mean, he got a formal warning and I couldn't see on what basis he, he could have he should have been given that. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. There's, there's differing opinions on it. I mean, I think for me, in this day and age, I think you've just got to be very careful. You know, with, yes. with, with, with what happened, you've just got to be very careful. You know, his, his beliefs are there. He's got strong beliefs, but... You know he's come and he's probably made a, an error of judgment. That's as simple as it is. Um, and he's got he's got a formal warning. But let's not forget he's gone out onto the pitch and he has put in a performance which I don't think many people could have done. I mean, man of the match, yes. man of the match, twenty one carries. Um, he created a platform. You always talk about the big players and and be able to take uh, players with them to create the space for the likes of Farrell, the likes of Alex Alex Goode to minute minute play the defence. That comes from your forwards. That comes from your Michael Rhodes. That comes from your Billy Vunapola just giving them just that extra yard, just getting over the gain line and just drawing in defenders. And that's exactly what they did. And they did it time after time. And and for Saracens, you know, that's where, they, that's where they're good. They're ferocious in defence. Their kicking game is absolutely outstanding. And they have, when big ball players like that are on their game, it creates opportunities. Well, get, let's get one thing straight. Vonny Paula, whether you want to boo him or not, it's up to you. What is totally unacceptable 
is for a pitch invader to confront him. Then, first of all, there shouldn't be a pitch invader because he shouldn't get onto the pitch. And secondly, you know, that sort of confrontation is not something that he deserves. I mean, I went into this in great detail and I looked at it in every way possible. And you could not say that uh, Billy Vinopola endorsed what I thought were terribly unwise and possibly anti-gay comments made by Falau. He did he stopped short of that. And the fact is, you know, this happens, it's happened in football and who knows what these pitch invaders carry? Who knows what they do? Yeah, I think I've been at the Rico a few times this season. I've seen it happen on a number of occasions. A couple of times when you just had someone running down the centre of the pitch, but someone has run in an earlier WAS game this year from one end to the other without being touched mm. and jumped over the barriers. That's unacceptable in this day and age. You have got, you've never seen so many yellow jackets before a game as security. So I, I don't understand how it's possible for this sort of thing to happen, but there is going to come a time, we've seen it in football more recently, uh, where one of the players, I think it was, was it Jack Grealish at Aston yes. Villa, um, yes. had a player that was just behind him and, and actually went up to him and, and physically um, assaulted him. So for that to nearly happen again with, with Billy, you know, more remonstrating, more verbal than actually physical. But, you know, he said he was scared. and that, That's not what players should be. Well, people will say, you know, scared, you won't look at you. Well, who knows, as I say, who knows what he's carrying? Who knows what state he's in? But let's move on from that. Owen Farrell, a lot of praise for the control of the match and people asking the question, why can't he do that for England? Well, the simple answer to that, for me, is you look around him and you look at the input constantly of Alex Good, who's talking from fullback. You look at people like Brad Barrett, who's been an England player, very experienced, and he's talking to him all the time. And that's the difference. My thing, and I'll be pretty honest in that, is pick Alex Good for England. I think he's been the most consistent player uh, across as a fullback. I mean, don't forget I've played fullback. I may, mm. not, may not know enough, but I, I know a bit about fullback play. And Alex Good for me, the, the thing about Alex Good, he's a brilliant talker, but he also takes the pressure off Owen Farrell. He comes in at second receiver when Owen Farrell's not there. And you might say, well, George Ford does that when he's playing for England because you've got sort of two tens playing. But when George Ford isn't playing, you need someone there to just step in at, at, at first receiver, second receiver, just say, give me the ball, I'll make something happen. He's a very intelligent footballer. Very intelligent footballer. But it's not only that. It's not just his intelligence. He, 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 he provides space for other people with his footwork. He goes through the gap himself. And yes, he's not going to be like scoring, always scoring tries from 60, 70 metres with the out-and-out -out gas. But as an all-round player and as a consistent performer, I don't think there's anyone better at fullback in England. Well, at the moment, Sarri's, they look in that sort of form to be unstoppable. Let's remind ourselves he's won five major trophies since 2014-15. What do you think allows them to field a strong attack consistently, two brutal competitions, which Championship and the Premiership are? In a way, perhaps at say, just for example, Exeter, Claremont can't quite manage. Well, I think it's to do with their mentality. I, I think, um, you know, they're a side that, let's not forget where they were five years ago. You know, they went through some final losses in, in both the Premiership, in the Champions Cup. Um, and we said, and well, Mark McCall even said himself at the time that they were going to come back stronger in three, four, five years' time. And they are now consistently at the top of European rugby, whether it's in the Premiership, whether it's obviously Champions Cup. And, and they, I think it's, to, it's down to their... As I said right at the start of this um, of our chat, in the big moments of big games, they have players all over the pitch that come together as a team and, and win games. And you cannot underestimate that from a side that's built together over five years. They haven't changed much over five years. They've added quality, 
but they've got the backbone of the same team that's been together for a long time. And that's a really good point because it's one I picked out. Saracens, for a long time, do you remember, they were vanity buyers. They bought the biggest names from around the world. Some worked out, some didn't. More often than not, they didn't. And they finally stopped doing that. And the recruitment now is very shrewd. They pick the one or two players up. People like Maitland, people like Daly, people like We've Liam had, Williams. Yeah, and Alex Lozowski as well. And, and you guys just like... get these one or two. They augment, they've brought people through from the academy and now they're shrewd buyers, whereas before they were just profligate. Uh, yeah, I, I can't agree more with that. And, and what also they do is they get the best out of play, the players they buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alex Lozowski going there, you know, not necessarily was probably second, third choice at Wasp, goes to uh, Saracens and is, is a regular starter. So Ben Spencer, you know, he's come from... I wouldn't say nowhere, but he's been building over through the years with Saracens. And now he's, you know, in that semi-final, a, game, a brilliant game. And, 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 you know, I think you mentioned it uh, in your, in your article as well, that, you know, he's going to be probably the guy that might even win them the game in terms of be the deciding factor in that final against Leinster. He, he has been that good for them. So yeah, it's getting the best out of the players that aren't necessarily international, current international players, but it's also about those international players playing to the level that everyone expects them to. Well, why don't we speak to someone who used to play for Leinster and Munster, James Daly, who's on the line to discuss, in particular, the Leinster victory over Toulouse, and then look forward a bit to the final. Hello, James. Brian, how are you? I'm okay, mate. Three tries, Fardy, Lowe and McGrath. What did you think when Toulouse picked especially a scrum half, Antoine Dupont at 10? What did you think when that happened? I was such a surprising choice, to be honest. You know, it, I think uh, the Leinster side looked at that and said, well, this is an area where we're going to go and we're going to target. And it, it only changed later on when, when they brought on Entenmacher 10 that they actually looked uh, a little bit better. I'm surprised they did it, you know, and I just think it played into Leinster's hands, uh, as you can see how they played. And look, Leinster didn't let the side down. I think they were focusing on a lot on what they were doing themselves. And look, it was Johnny Sexton's first game since the Six Nations as well. And it was just a, a huge game for him. I guess the pressure he was under as well mm. coming into that game and by form and stuff like that. But I think uh, Johnny really held his hand up and showed what a pivotal player he is for the province. Well, James, you're a lot younger than me, but I'm old enough to know that over the last 30-odd years, the French have had a really odd attitude to specialists nines and tens and they believe they're interchangeable they're not but they do believe that Sean O'Brien was singled out for praise by Leo Cullen afterwards how good a game do you think he had? Again he was another one who had, I wouldn't say been under pressure I just thought Sean he was immense in, in everything he did he had one of his his biggest games I think in, in the last while I think he hadn't hit the height of the lines a couple of years ago and I think he was nearly forcing things when he was coming back and he didn't play well for Ireland or as well as he would have liked in the Six Nations. I just think he was he was everywhere and Leo Cullen spoke about him after the game and it was his last, probably his last game in the Aviva Stadium as well and look, he was emotional when he spoke afterwards but I think he was everywhere. A lot of carries. I think he was just behind James Ryan and in terms of carries and, and turnovers and you just needed that physical presence that Sean brings and just to kind of get in people's faces and that abrasiveness, I guess, when you lose someone like Dan Levy and you lose Josh Van der Flyer, and then you still have that ability to be able to call on Sean O'Brien. And look, he's been there, he's done, he's done it, and he's just one of these uh, leaders in the side, and he really stepped up, and they needed him at the weekend. James, James Hugo here. 
There you go. How's it going? Just um, I was I was at the game uh, the week before Glasgow Leinster. I was commentating on on the game, and I, I spoke to Felipe before the game because I was really interested in how Leinster players that are rested for two weeks, three weeks, come back in at the level uh, that's needed to play in a Champions Champions Cup semi final. And that for me, any other side might might need. You know, bring players back and they might need a couple of games. With Leinster, they seem to have the structures in place that whether they're guys coming from sort of the effective second team or guys that haven't played for a while can still come in at a level that is so high. Yeah, look, and it, it amazes me as well. I think um, a couple of years ago, the way they used to do it was um, because the RFU have such control over players that they'd bring these players back and they'd play kind of the week before Europe just to kind of get up to speed with plays and, as such and uh, and then they'd kind of play the second game the next week and in case there's any rust game rustiness there but you look at like likes of Robbie Henshaw and stuff like that and Johnny Sexton as I say who played his first game in, since the Six Nations and they just have that ability just to step up and pressure games and for me personally, I would like I'd need a couple of games just to get to get up to speed and just to get game fitness. But they just seem to have that ability ability to do it, you know. And uh, as you've mentioned, and look, if we could all if we could all get that in, and Devon Toner as well, they'd be a strong side. Like Devon, I thought was immense again as well. He's such a, a key pivotal player for Leinster in terms of like his line out calling and everything else he brings around the park and. And he balances well with James Ryan, who again another huge game from him. But it's these, as you say, it's. If we could bottle that, uh, we'd be rich men. Yeah. James, you mentioned the two second rows for Leinster and that pairing up against Itoji and Cruz is but one of several huge personal uh, battles. Farrell Sexton will take a lot of the headlines, obviously, but there's Mako Vonipola tied furlong. But the one I'm interested in, because of the relative, not inexperienced, but Lack of limelight for Ben Spencer and Luke McGrath because, you know, of Conor Murray and, and, and others. Uh, Wigglesworth for Saracens. How do you think that battle will go if they're first choices? It's an interesting point in terms of, I think, as you say, the kind of bigger names as such will take a lot of the, the headlines beforehand. And I think the way Saracens play and how um, Ben Spencer is a pivotal part of that is, is crucial for in terms of how Leinster need to stop them, you know, and I think you saw against Munster how effective they are with their with their box kicks and how Ben Spencer organises them and gets them around the park and he's just one of those unsung heroes. As is Luke McGrath, as you say, that these guys just don't get the plot, it's in the headlines. It's going to be close between the two of them. Ultimately, I think it's it's going to be down to, to the packs as it, as it normally always is. But these guys have to be on the money. Luke McGrath has to really get the side going. And I guess with that with that in mind, you have Leinster still have to make some interesting selection decisions. And you saw Jameson Gibson Park was out with illness. And, and Leinster have Scott Fardy who came in then as well. And James Lowe, how do you leave out one of those foreign players? Yes. And that's, that's a big call for them, you know. And Because if you do go with Luke McGrath and, and you've got the young, uh, inexperienced Hugh Sullivan on the bench, and they did well, but... You know, again, it's it's a big drop in experience when you look at Saracens and they've Ben Spencer and you have uh, Richard Wigglesworth to come on, you know, who can certainly close out a game. So, look, there's there's plenty of areas to choose from, but that's that's certainly going to be a big one between the nine. If you had to put money on it, I don't know if you're a betting man, where would your cash be going? Oh, it's, it's going to be a tough one, I think. You know, you saw how, how effective Saris were at the weekend. I'm extremely impressed with them. They're so efficient in what they do. They're such a relentless side and you know, they keep the scoreboard ticking over. Oh, I don't know. Um, I think I'd like to go with Leinster if I could, you know, but Sarries at the moment, are, I, I see 
are going in as favourites. Uh, Leinster have a couple of weeks to kind of iron out maybe a few things that didn't go as well at the weekend, but um, Saris just have to pick it up again if they can do that. Saris are certainly favourites, but I'm going to have to go with Leinster. I'm going to have to stick with my own national side, so uh, I'll be going with Leinster for that one just to sneak it, though. But it's it's great to see the two two headline teams in the final. You know, it's such a mate-watering prospect. Absolutely. Great to speak to you, uh, James. Thank you very much. Cheers. James Downey from Leinster and Munster Centre, and he's right. Fag pack it between them. Yeah, there really is nothing between them. I, I think two very different games. I think the sort of brutality of uh, of Saracens, yes, they've got a, a game as well and they play play a lot of rugby once they get in your half. But I think I think the breakdown is going to be absolutely, absolutely key. key. Yeah. Uh, and if, if Saracens can nullify the breakdown like they did with, uh, with, with, with Munster, I think it's going to be a long afternoon for Leinster, but it's going to be very close. What effect, if any, do you think this will have? Uh, the weekend before the final, Leinster don't have a game, but Saris are playing Exeter. <laughs> yes, Saris have got Wass next as well, which is obviously crucial for Wass, and then and then obviously Exeter. So it is, I mean, Saris would like to probably win one of the next two games and, and cement their place home semi-final, but I think it does make a difference. I think what we just mentioned, what I asked uh, James Downey there, is how you know most players would want a game before that uh, that final now. I think Leinster will just rest their, their guys up and just say, right, put everything into that game because they what an interesting point Felipe Contomomi meant is they train as if they're playing every single so every training session that they're more concerned than Leinster coaches that the players are going to pick in two weeks time a training every day at the intensity they need to play at to be ready for those games and I think that's what they'll do they'll just train really hard get everyone ready and their focus is purely going to be on May the 11th well a quick word about the Challenge Cup neither of the Premiership sides could get over the line Quinns and Sale went down to Claremont and La Rochelle, uh, respectively. I, I, I thought it was a, a difficult task for both of them. I thought they did as well as I expected, but the two French sides just stronger all round. And it, it could, it could be a very good final. Yeah, it could be a very good final. La Rochelle's first. Well. Yeah, La Rochelle's first. And I, I think you'd probably put, because of how Claremont have choked in finals, I think you put La Rochelle as favourites. Mm. But I think it's going to be it's going to be a you know Claremont are going well, but they always give you a sniff. We saw it with Harlequins at the weekend, miles ahead or, or quite a long way ahead. Harlequins, the door was opened a bit for them, and they nearly snuck in there. But uh, you know, frustrating for both sides to lose mm. both away from home in France by such small margins is frustrating, especially for Sale. I think Sale have got a game that suited going away to La Rochelle to win and they just couldn't quite get it. It would have been a huge result for them. Well, of course, when we return to domestic action, there's a huge scrap going on, both at the top and the bottom of the Premiership. But one thing we do know is whoever goes down, and it is unfortunately looking uh, a bit like Newcastle, they will be replaced by London Irish, who are bouncing straight back up. Great to say we can speak to... An Irish wing, over 300 appearances for them. It's Topsy Ojo. Hello, Topsy. Hi, good evening. What difference have Declan Kidney as director of rugby and Les Reed as head coach made? They've brought a ton of experience, I guess, from the, the various clubs that they've been at, a lot of success to. Um, I think the biggest change, they put a lot more emphasis on the players. So uh, we haven't gone in with too much structure. It's been about allowing the players to figure out a lot more for themselves on the pitch to kind of take control of those decisions and to really kind of grow and develop that way because the plan is hopefully now going back into the premiership that we're going to have so much thrown at us that if we're too programmed or, you know, too structured in that way, we're just, we're not going to have a chance. So it's about, it's been about developing the players and just really giving us ownership of what we've done this season. 
Well, I uh, know the uh, owner very, very well. He's a Chelsea fan. Uh, that's how I know him. And I, I know that they don't. you don't have the biggest budget around, but would you expect there to be any many uh, big signings for next year? I would like to think so, yeah. I mean, um, we know how tough the Premiership is. You know, watching from this year, you see how competitive it is and teams are beating each other every week. So I think we understand that we're going to need to sign some really high-quality players to complement what we've got now uh, if if we want to fight and stay in it. So uh, I would imagine that that's in mixed thinking. You know, he wants to build a squad that is not only capable of staying in but competing in the Premiership and you know, with Brentford moving on the horizon as well, the new stadium, it's, you know, a squad that can take us there as well and something really positive to look forward to. Topsy, Hugo here. How's it going? Yeah, very good, thanks. Good, good. Just on that uh, move to the new stadium, how, how do you think that will affect uh, next year and, and obviously pushing on into the years to come and, and staying in the Premiership? Uh, well, I mean, we've got one more in Reading, um, but I think it's something hugely positive for the club, you know, not just in terms of maybe a slightly smaller stadium, but one that we can probably pack out a bit better. Um, you know, it will enable us to grow a new fan base and to, to really build and just allow the club to grow, grow, sorry. Probably something it's not been able to do in the last couple of years and probably throughout the time at Reading. So that's going to be a huge change. Um, it means we can have one really big year at the Medeski next season, you know, be our farewell year and ideally play some really good rugby through the season. And then, like I say, give us something really positive to take to Brentford for a new beginning. I'm not sure whether it has disclosed your contract extension. Are you, are you there next season? Uh, it hasn't been extended as yet. Okay. <laughs> that, that's why you, you won't have seen anything. Oh, fair enough. Are you hopeful? Would you like to see? Yeah, we are, we're, we're talking. We're talking. Uh, I'll have a decision very soon about, about what I'm going to do for next year. I've just been doing one-year rolling deals. You might have to um, take the Lamborghini off the table. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually said they had to name a stand after me at the new stadium. So <laughs> so, uh, I'm waiting for the paperwork to come through on that. Okay, mate. Well, look, um, great achievement. Uh, thoroughly deserved. I'm glad uh, London Irish are back. And uh, all the best uh, for next season. Uh, hopefully you'll be there. And if not, wherever you are. Great. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. Topsy Ojo. London Irish uh, wing. I like Irish as a club. I always have done. They made a terrible error of judgment when they got planning permission for uh, Sunbury. And they then tried to amend it. And of course, that was a new planning application. And then they found they couldn't get that through and so on. But it would be good for them to get back to Brentford. You know, do you know where the new stadium is? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's going to be a good stadium, actually. Yeah, a great location, good stadium. And, and as, as Topsy mentioned there, just to fill it, you know, it's one thing playing a stadium of, uh, of 30,000, 30, and having, you know, 10, 12,000 there. You have a smaller stadium, you look to fill it. You, that's, that's the aspiration to get it filled and get the crowd fully behind you. And uh, yeah, that's what they'll get there. That's what they'll build towards. And when they get there, you hope they have the squad uh, that's deep enough. We, we've seen this year with Bristol. Yeah. You know, Bristol have you know, a lot of money behind them, let, let's be honest. And they've been astute with some of their key signings, their key players. And they're a difficult team to beat. That's what London Irish need to become in the Premiership this time round. Move on to other topics. Warren Gatlin looks set to return as Lions coach again for 2021. And they're hoping to finalise the appointment by the end of the month. The new chair of the British and Irish Lions, Jason Leonard. My mate, might have said, he's collecting, he's collecting gongs and seats like anyone. I, I never thought he would be the archetypal committee man, but he's obviously taking to it well. Do you think there's ever going to be a prospect that he would be England coach and would it be a good idea anyway? Warren not, Gatland not or Jason, Jason No, Leonard. not Jason. I'm slightly confused there. Warren Gatland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, Warren Gatland. I, I think with the way that you know things have happened with Wales and the way he sort of moved away and uh, moved aside from that role, I think there's a lot of chat about it. But I'd be surprised if he, if he became uh, England coach. I think you know with with what he's done for Wales, and there's no doubt that he's the outstanding candidate, and that's why he's being talked about, and that's why he's obviously being promoted and, and talked about again as a, as a third back to back lines coach um, because he is he is that good, and his record speaks for itself. But I very much doubt um, that he will uh, find himself in that England role anytime soon. Well, as soon as the private equity firm CVC completed the 27% purchase of the English Premiership, I knew this was going to happen. Been announced there have been in talks to the Pro 14 about buying a stake in that league and uh, Premiership rugby boss Mark McCafferty is talking about there being club games on a reasonably regular basis between hemispheres, possible playoff between Pro 14 winners and Premiership winners. All this is just about money. Where I mean, what what are players supposed to do? They'll want to play. They're, they're, look, the great, great ideas on paper, but they should stay there. I have to agree. I think everything, you know, whether it's talked about the, the Nations League, whether it's talked about, um, you know, CVC coming in and making regular games overseas with different... Um, different nations I just think the whole thing is uh, you know it's commercially driven uh, and as you say it, it sort of takes away from everything that we've sort of grown up about the traditions of rugby uh, and where the six nations all the all the all the traditional tournaments that are in place you know I know it's the way the world is going that, that is unfortunate but there has to be a balance so I have no I have no problem with progress but what you can't do is simply make the assumption that new is better that new is always going to be more attractive because it, there are certain things like the Six Nations which are very successful, and I'm a big advocate and always have been of that progressing with automatic promotion and relegation on some form, however restricted it is. And the new world order probably will come, but after people have sat down and thrown everything into a mix, you can't just shoehorn things in like this. Yeah, and the problem is you can't trial it. It's not something no. you can really trial. You no. have to be sure that it's going to work and just go for it. And as you've just rightly said, you know the traditions of the Six Nation. It works, and it works really well. The crowds are you know a massive every game. The times when Scotland and Italy weren't filling stadiums, they not, they now are. So it is a really outstanding tournament for for for, for the world of rugby fans to watch. And you know, it's a shame that other stuff's being talked about to complement, replace, whatever it is, based on purely a commercial model. If there was a realignment of the seasons, the only possibility, the hemisphere that should move, it's certainly professional game, is this hemisphere. Because when you're talking, if you're talking about summer rugby, you know, in the southern hemisphere, you're talking about ridiculous temperatures. I mean, I think it's quite nice at the moment uh, here, you know, and, and uh, it never gets ridiculously hot. And I, I don't have a problem with that, uh, but it has to be done on a, a properly thought out basis. Well, yeah, I feel sorry for the uh, for the Southern Kings and for the Cheetahs in the Pro 14. They're coming yeah. from December. I think it's probably harder for them to come and play more games in the winter than it is for uh, from us Northern Hemisphere size to go over and play the odd game uh, in 30 degrees. It's quite nice over Christmas. But, um, you know, as you say, it, it's easier for us to, to, to transfer our um, or change our, our league structures and league timings to, to the summer because, well, it might not be easier in terms of logistics, but in terms of playing in those conditions. I wish I'd had that opportunity when I was playing. And as I said before, I don't see the reason to move the amateur game. You can leave that in, in the winter. Then actually they'll get best of both of us because they can play their own season and they can watch when there's nothing else to uh, to watch rugby-wise. Ben, just finally, Ben Teo is leaving Worcester end of the season. I don't think if he wants to stay, he'll be short of offers. 
No, I think he's he's one of those guys that, that brings a, a real physical presence at 12. And, uh, you know, it hasn't been announced, uh, as you say, where, where he's going yet. I'm sure he has uh, a few options up his sleeve. Um, and he provides something that a lot of teams want. You know, that platform at 12, just to get you over the gain line. He also plays the other side of the tackle, gets his hands free, and he brings other runners onto him. Well, I do think he's been pigeoned. And this, this happens a lot to players, especially players who can take the ball. They get labelled as uh, as bangers as just being able to carry up. You don't play in the NRL for eight years and not be able to distribute. No, but I, I still think he's a better ball player the other side of the tackle. Yes, um, and, and like Manu to Elangi, very similar sort of player. Yeah. They're, they're, they are good decision makers and their passing off both hands is, is obviously up there to play international rugby. But I would say that they are very, very good decision making the other side of the tackle. It's just a better strength of theirs and, and that's uh, that's as simple as that but they're all round, they're all round players and they offer a lot more than just that time now a bit of a departure we're going to speak to the author of a book called brothers in arms dave beresford lived in france for eight years teaching english playing rugby for a variety of clubs sean fitzpatrick has written an intro to this book and i'll read it to you so sit back put your feet up and grab a glass of french wine this book it's as much a story about France, life, friendship and the human spirit as it is about rugby. It's bursting with wonderful stories, photos and most importantly, a deep love and respect for France, its people and its regions. will make Francophiles, humanists and rugby fans across the world very happy. The proceeds are going to four charities, UK Sepsis Trust, British Heart Foundation, Fortitube, Curing Colon Cancer and the Stroke Association. Dave is on the line now. Hello, Dave. Hi, Brian. How are you? Okay, now this is basically about the golden generation of French yes. rugby, the 1980s. Um, I was involved That's a bit right. in that, and I remember speaking to you about it. Uh, That's right. Yeah, and we spoke uh, just a few months ago. You're right. It was. I mean, this, I guess this generation, Brian, almost precedes you a little bit, doesn't it? I, some of the players certainly played against you a lot, but they were sort of towards the end of their career. Mm. But this was really about that golden generation that won an awful lot of the games, won the Six Nations, Actually, about six times. Some of those were joined first during the 1980s. And obviously won the Grand Slam twice as well in 81 and 87 and were the finalists of the, in the first World Cup final against the All Blacks in 87. Well, it's um, described as, as part chronicle, part dialogue, part travel log. Yeah. How, how did you fit the various... Because those are very different <sighs> strands. They usually we get one. Yeah. You can't usually successfully combine uh, them. I, I think you have done. So how did you develop the idea? How did I do it? Well, I, I guess, I mean, the initial idea was was actually no more than a, a bit of, a, literally was just an idea. I was sitting in the Pyrenees in, I think it was August 2017. Um, I was in between jobs. I was involved in selling a company just before that. And I thought, well, what am I going to do for this sort of next six to 12 months? So I had this idea of, of just, you know, going around and meeting all these great players. And, and I was really going to focus on the French flair and, and almost do a bit of a chronicle. And what I realized, actually, is I went around and met these players all of whom were just fantastic blokes. I mean, just like good old-fashioned amateur rugby players has existed all over the world back in the day, is that their lives are full of twists and turns of good and bad. There are some terrible things that they've experienced and some great things. And therefore, it became a lot more than just describing what the rugby was like, which, of course, has been done many times over the past. And it was about a lot more than just describing what French flair was. Um, and every player was different. Every player had a different story to tell. So, for example, you know, you talk to Serge Blanco, and besides the, the fact that I had this absolutely magnificent three-hour lunch with Serge um, when I interviewed him, you know, he talked a lot about apartheid. And 
the impact apartheid had on him, and that you probably don't recall, but his first cap was against the Springboks in 1980 or 80, 1980, I think it was, right at the peak of apartheid. And how, so, you know, how he described, I never knew that fact, but how he described that, how he felt, you know, when he wore the uniform, the French uniform, and when he took it off, were, he felt like two completely different people. So there were some very interesting stories that you uncover as you meet each of the players, and each one had their own unique strand. And then, you know, you meet somebody like Jean-Pierre Reeve, which I guess, you know, certainly in my eyes was what, who I remember as being probably the first global superstar of rugby at the, of, of the time. And, um, you know, he is a pure artist. He has an utter, you know, his view, he, he's, a, he's an artist who disrespects um, the establishment. He doesn't like rules, doesn't like discipline, but a magnificent man who had a fantastic philosophy about playing rugby. And he really brought some of that French flair and freedom to the players at the time and has been magnificent post-playing as well with the creation of the French Barbarians and has also become an internationally renowned sculptor. So I guess I've just, we'll come back to your question, I, I guess I've just weaved together the different strands of the stories and, um, and also woven in some of my own stories of living, working, playing, studying in France in the last sort of 30-odd years, some of which have nothing to do with rugby, actually, but, you know, I find them funny. Hopefully the reader will find them funny as well. Dave, uh, Hugo here. Thank you. Do you think we'll ever get back? I mean, I played in France, uh, as you probably yeah. know, with Stade Francais, yeah. 2009, 2011. And um, yeah. that, that French flair that you're talking about, for me, was a bit of a myth in, mm. in the years that mm. I was there because the game had become, uh, especially in the winter months and, and into uh, sort of, you know, around Christmas time, it became very stodgy, a lot of kicking. You had mm. to be very good under the chandelle. Otherwise, you, you, you're in trouble. Do you think we'll ever get back to that French flair of the 80s? You know, we, in the last 10 years, all we've seen is, is France picking big, big, heavy fours mm. and it becoming a bit of a slog fest. Mm. I mean, I hope we do, but I, I guess the, the realist in me says probably not. And, you know, even back in the 80s, people remember the French flair, but, but they had a, an absolutely, you know, brutal uh, pack, if you recall. Yes. I mean, you know, Brian, you played against them as well, I guess, in those... This, the, you know, the likes of Eric Sean, these weren't for people to, they, these weren't the sort of people that went backwards. So, um, it, but I guess what they did is they, they, they created space, didn't they, for those behind. But I think the defensive patterns today are the defensive patterns and the fitness levels, certainly when they're playing international sides, are so high. I don't think you get that level of space on the pitch anymore. I think you require much more discipline, don't you, and much more structure to wear the opposition down. And actually, that discipline and that structure and those fitness levels. I think are a little bit anathema to the, how the French think and how they want to play. I think um, to, for me, it's more about their mentality. And I, and I think mm, you, you look back mm. into the 80s and the, the first option was potentially to, to, to have a go, to have to attack, whether they had the front foot ball from the forwards or whether they were going from deep inside their 22. I think at the moment, it's slightly different. It's probably first option is to kick. There's a few players that are coming into the mixer that are looking uh, a bit more threatening. Yeah. You know, Damien Panot is a quality yeah. player, but... Uh, for me, the mindset has changed slightly since those days, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, and people like, you know, some people would hold Laporte responsible. Ironically, now the the the, uh, the president of the FFR, but they would say that he was the guy that, that actually imposed this yes. sort of Anglo-Saxon discipline uh, upon the French uh, way of playing, which just isn't their instinct at all. I mean, I'd love to see them be able to come back and, uh, and play like they used to, but we're certainly seeing no evidence today. Well, Dave, it always helps if you've got a pack that consists of Sholly, Paco, Papron, Bord, <laughs> Imbanon, Palmier, Skrella, Bastia, yeah. Reeve, doesn't it? it and does. I remember and that. I mean, I, I was at school then, and I remember the England-France <laughs> games. I, and I just remember looking at that pack, and it was a hell of a pack, wasn't it? Well, it was. And you remember, do you remember those, those pictures of 1977, if we can all remember that far back? And 
that game particularly when, well, 1977, of course, the French won, I think it was their second Grand Slam. The first was in 68. They won in 77. They, they won all their five games, sorry, four, four games with the same 15 players. Yep. They didn't concede a single try. And Cholet, there's that infamous game, isn't there, against the Scots. Hugo, you must remember there. Well, you probably don't remember this. You were too young. But um, where uh, Cholet beat up about three of the Scotsmen um, with, with, with a combination of, I think, strong jabs and handoffs. And, of course, nobody got sent off at all. But, but I mean, they were a great side. And, you know, Imbernon is actually in the book because you had to have played in the 80s to, to fit in my selection criteria. Palmier just just didn't get in. And then, of course, behind you had magnificent players back then as well called, um, there was a guy called Aguirre, who played fullback, yes. played for Bannier. Magnificent player. Um, Bertrand, who was a bit like Philip Seller, really, and he got 65, 66 caps for the French. They also played at Bannier as well. They were fantastic to watch. And the thing I loved about them, and even though my, my book's very much focused on the 80s, a lot of those players really, you know, Reed included, Inben or another one, really, I guess, learned their trades in the 70s. Um, was this sort of mix of chaos. Uh, it, you know, it was, the, the flair was always bordering on chaos, wasn't it? You know, it was sort of a completely unstructured type of game. But when they turned it off, particularly the Padre France, I thought they were just brilliant to watch. Dave, just um, finally, uh, the, the proceeds mm. are all, they're all going to say the four charges I also think. Coming out yep. in September, how can people get their hands on it? So, best thing to do is, I've got a website, um, it's called brothersinarmsbook.co.uk. It's up and running, so brothersinarmsbook.co.uk. It's up and running. All the information's on there. People go on and register. Then I'll keep them up to speed with um, information about the launches. Um, there'll be a whole bunch of launches around the World Cup time, information on the book. And also what I'm releasing every, every other week, actually, are these teasers. So everybody, so, so I've, I've written the book by, by region, where the players live today. And there's also a section on players that unfortunately are no longer with us, such as Paparan Board uh, and Vakera, of course, as well, mm-hmm. the guy who killed himself playing Russian roulette in 1993. He'll be in the book. And if we can go on, they can sign up, register, and I'll keep them updated on the, uh, on, on, on the book and where we are with it. Well, best of luck with out. it, Dave. Um, worthy. Thanks, Brian. Uh, um, and I'm sure it'll be a great read. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Cheers, Brian. Dave Beresford, author of Brothers in Arms. Time now to switch to the women's game. The Premier 15's final is on Saturday. It's at Franklin's Gardens. The kickoff is at 5.45pm. It's live on Sky Sports Action. The contestants will be Saris and Quinns. Now, 15 out of 28 players selected for the Red Roses. That's the England women's national team. Their contracts, they've come from either Saris or Quinns. There's one win apiece between these teams in the regular season. So, it's going to be close. Very pleased to say we can look forward to what should be a great final. Hopefully it'll be well attended and well viewed. We've got the Harlequins ladies coach on the line, Gary Street. Hello, Gary. Evening, Brian. How are you? Okay. Uh, Love for Lightning fancied the chances, I think, in the semi-final. You dispatched them 26-10. How much do you think Quins have improved from this point last year? Definitely we have. I think, I think we're probably a bit disappointed in, in the semi. I don't think we really got our attacking game going, but we, we found a way and I think we uh, upped our physicality and, and saw them off. But, uh, the, the depth of the squad's better, definitely. I think we've we've got other ways to win the game rather than sort of just hitting wingers and, and sort of just breaching Heather out wide and, and, and scoring fancy tries that we did some dirty work as well. So, yeah, I, th- I think we're a lot better. Um, Tavis probably are as well, so um, I think it's going to be a pretty full-on game. Well, I've seen you uh, live this season and I don't think there's any problems creatively. I think that the 
speed you've got, the decision making is good. I just wonder whether you have the power to match the Cleo twins and uh, Marley Packer and players like that. Uh, unfortunately for Ceres, um, Bryony, uh, Bryony Cleo, Marley Packer, and Vicky Fleet were all injured going into um, into this weekend. So that's that's a big blow for them. Um, but they've still got big ball games, still got Blossomman and, and Poppy Cleo. But yeah, without doubt, that, that's a big a big blow for them. It is a big um, blow, yeah. Yeah, so um, we're, we're pretty confident um, this season. Um, it's going to be really close. It's going to be Europe plays on the day. You know, the final last year, we lost by three points. This season, we beat them at home by three points. They beat us at their home at Allianz Park by three points. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a it's going to be a big bit of a slugfest, I think. What's the uh, crowd shaping up like? Do you hope it will be some? I don't think it will be full, obviously, but what sort of crowd would you think uh, would be acceptable? Five, six thousand? Uh, yeah, a few thousand. I think. I think would say. I think obviously it's uh, to London clubs and the and the travel. We've we, we've got a big band of. Of hardcore Harlequins ladies bands now, which is fantastic. So uh, Northampton being a, a, a big rugby town as well. So yeah, we're really hoping there's a few thousand come in. When I, when I was with England, we used to we used to play some of our games at Saints quite a few years ago, and I was really well supported there. So hopefully, um, some of those people are, are going out and watch, which we, is going to be a really good game of rugby. I think. Just a final question, if you don't mind, Gary. Uh, yeah. Uh, second year, I believe, of the uh, Tyrrells. Premier 15s. Overall, the standard, how far do you think it's improved uh, this season from last? Yeah, it's definitely improved. And I think the off-field stuff is helping with that. I think, you know, I think that the game just has there's more awareness about the, the Tyrrells Premiership as well. That That's definitely um, helped promote stuff. I think girls see that there's a professional sport now. They see there's a, a league where you can be a professional player in the league. And, and, and some of the, the youngsters coming through from the sense of excellence are are really outstanding. Um, I, I know that you know yourself and I. We've, we've talked about the younger down. We need to make sure that we've got age groups for mm-hmm. all our, our girl players coming through from school. And I think once that happens, we'll we'll start to get a really productive sort of uh, throughput as well, going for long term. Gary, best of uh, luck in the final. It's a great game. Let's hope that you can come out on top. Thanks, Brian. With apologies, of course, due to Sarri's fans, but I was an ex-Quinn, so I don't need to uh, say sorry. Hugo, next week. Can you see Wasp doing the double? I tell you what, Wasp, uh, after that win at uh, Exeter last week, or the week before last, sorry, not this weekend, just gone. I mean, that was uh, that was a phenomenal result. To be fair, I didn't see that coming. I don't think many people did. did I they? mean, not just the win, but the bonus point win. I mean, it was desperately needed, but I, I don't think anyone saw that coming. And to produce a performance like that, it sort of begs a question, you know, where's where's that been most of the season? Wasp have been very, very unfortunate with injuries. And, you know, in the last few years, they've probably needed, you know, this is no disrespect to the guys coming in, but they haven't probably had the depth uh, of player coming in to perform at places like that. They had a pretty good, they had a pretty much the full strength side out, um, and they all performed to a level that just didn't allow Exeter back into the game. They came back at the end slightly, but still to get a bonus point win down there puts them in a position, a completely different. You know, you get confidence from winning, you get momentum, and to now have Saris at home having uh, having won away at Exeter I think they've got every chance but just look at those other games they are absolutely <laughs> crucial yeah, oh, yeah. I mean every game has has something in it you know Exeter at home to Quinns if Quinns don't win that they're suddenly you know under threat of that fourth position which Wasser are obviously chasing as well you know, Newcastle have to win otherwise it, it, it could be curtains Sale Bath are obviously fighting for top six so there is all over Leicester and Bristol you know yep. there's, there's, there's connotations everywhere Worcester Warriors Gloucester so it really is a big weekend uh, in the Premier Premiership. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Thank you very much to my co-host, Hugh Southwell. 
and producer Abby Patterson as always. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you haven't done already. But for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.